Amen. Grab a seat. It's good to see many of you guys back last for after last week where um, we took a shower during the middle of church last week. So it's good to see a lot of you guys back. Uh, just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Um, if you didn't grab a scripture journal and you haven't gotten one yet, feel free to grab one of those off of the table over here. That's our free gift to you. We would love for you to have that. Uh, we love the Word of God here and would love for you guys to have one of those with you and to bring it back each and every week. And if you're in a gospel community, uh, to bring it to those as well. Uh, just another quick announcement today after church, probably five, maybe 10 minutes at the most after service finishes today, uh, we will be having a covenant member meeting. Um, so um, if you are not planning on staying for that meeting uh we'll have to kind of ask you to move on <laughs> today because we need to get that done so that we can get uh, out of here. Although I would encourage you to stick around just to hear about what is going on in the church, uh, what God has been doing over the last several months and where we see things going. All right. So disclaimer, because I saw a ton of the faces as Kiara read our text this morning, right? I was don't worry. Um, when I made this uh, outline for how we were going to break down these sermons throughout 1 Timothy this morning, the way that I kind of do that is I sit down with the staff and I say, hey, okay, here's what I see. Here's what I see going on in the text. Um, would love for you guys just to you know pop in and select which dates you want to teach on. And my other staff, Daniel and Theo, uh, graciously decided not to step up and teach this passage this morning. So Pastor Daniel, Pastor Theo, thank you for leaving uh, this to me uh, this morning. So let me just let me just you know be honest and, and put everything out front. This is an incre incredibly incredibly difficult uh, section of text to process through. There is a lot going on here. Some of you guys are going to hear me processing through this this morning, and you're going to disagree with what I say or what Paul is saying to Timothy. So let me just start by saying this. Would you bear with me and let me get all the way through what I believe Paul is trying to say and teach to Timothy here this morning? But at the end, right, if you still find yourself sitting here this morning like, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't like what he's saying. I don't like what Paul is saying. One of the things that I think is really beautiful is we love God's word here and uh, many of the members of the church, right, would be willing to discuss this with you. And I, for one, along with Pastor Theo, along with Pastor Daniel and any of the other elders like Pastor Derek or Pastor Stephen would love to talk through this with you. And we would rather answer your questions and work through the messiness of it instead of right holding on to grudges or being upset or angry about something that may or may not have been said. Amen? Amen. Okay, so a little bit of context for where we're at at this point in Paul's letter to Timothy. Last week, we saw that Paul has just gotten done uh, teaching Timothy on the importance and the primacy of prayer, including prayers for rulers, kings, leaders, even if you don't like them. And what's really funny to me is I've heard over the years, people argue over 1 Timothy chapter 2 all the time, but they argue over the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, not the first half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, even though many people struggle with 
being told to pray for someone they don't like, especially someone in power, right? Democrats tend to not like to be told to pray for the Republican who's in power. Republicans tend to not being uh, tend to not like being told to pray for the Democrat in power. And then there's people who are apolitical like me who don't like being told to pray for anybody who's in power because I don't trust any of them, right? And so you know, I tend to struggle with that, right? And yet God's word is clear. Kevin, it's sinful to not do that. And you need to adjust and realign yourself with God and his word because my church must be known as people that seek me, including praying for people that you don't necessarily care for, right? There's things in scripture all the time that we wrestle with. But what we're getting to today, right, is Paul is going to address some issues going inside the church at Ephesus that specifically had to do with things that men were doing and struggling with and things that women were doing and struggling with inside of this particular church. And so some of what we're gonna see this morning is specific to this specific church. Some of it though is gonna have broad application to the church at large. And I will attempt to, as best as I possibly can, make sure I explain that to you as we process through it. And he's gonna lay out some specific directions and instructions to Timothy on how to direct and correct the men and the issues that they're struggling with. And he's gonna lay out some specific instructions and directions to Timothy for the women and how to correct them as well. And again, I'll be honest, some of you are gonna find Paul's statements insensitive, some of you are going to find them uh, controversial and offensive. Don't throw them out and ignore them, though. And don't lose sight of the fact that if we approach God's word as truly being God's word, we need to allow ourselves to sit underneath of this and let ourselves respond to it in a way that's not a knee-jerk reaction, okay? The last thing I'll say is this. I, I've had people over the years, whenever you start getting into hot topic issues inside of scripture, right? Say to me, well, you know, Kevin, I, I'm not gonna deal with that issue or I choose, I choose not to believe that particular part of scripture because it's offensive and it doesn't apply in our culture today. And I, I hear that argument, right? Paul penned this almost 2000 years ago. I understand that knee jerk reaction to that. Let me just say this though. And this is the part about that argument that always kind of throws me for a loop. If you are offended by issues like having to pray for leaders or Paul addressing men's issues specifically inside the text here, or how Paul addresses men, let me just say this. The gospel is way more offensive than any of that. The gospel is way more offensive than any of that. And I think we lose sight of that, right? We lose sight of the fact because especially in evangelical church circles over the last probably two or three decades, we've presented Jesus as just like our buddy that we wanna hang out with who can't wait for us to come home and hang out with him and the door is always open and we can just come hang out every time. And like some of that is very true, but on the front end, right? The fact that Jesus Christ had to come to live, give himself up as a sacrifice on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God says something to us. It says this, you, your friend next to you, your pastor, right? The staff at this church, all of us are broken, rebellious, 
sinners and that we can not save ourselves, right? Scripture starts off about three chapters in by letting all of us know that we're defective, right? Not a great way to start a story, right? Three chapters in, God's like, yeah, Adam and Eve, they screwed everything up. And all of us from here on out are defective and in defiance and rebellion towards the creator of the universe. Guys, I don't, I don't know about you, right? As offensive as I may find what Paul says to the men or to the women here, right, in this letter to Timothy, I find that way more offensive, right? On the front of me, told, yeah, Kevin, you suck. Like, just like you were born and you already were terrible. All like before, and by the way, I know some of you guys are like, I don't know if I believe in original sin. I don't know if I believe it. Ruth Ann Green, raise your hand, is gonna have a baby here in a couple weeks. Give Ruth Ann a hand, right? Okay. If you do not believe in the doctrine of original sin, Ruth, Ann, and Josh would love for you to, with supervision, babysit their child starting at about age one. And you will be able to see, right, the truth of what God says about sin coming to fruition in scripture, right? That no one needs to teach us how to rebel or be sinful, right? The only difference is, is when they're little, they're really cute while they're, while they're terrible. And then when you get older, people get tired of it because you're not as cute as you used to be anymore, that's the number one problem with my youngest son. People are like, oh, like Josiah's just the best. I'm like, he is a heathen sinner desperately in need of the grace of God and does not know it yet. You just think he looks cute. And once that wears off, it's kind of like a puppy, right? Everyone loves their puppy, right? Until about eight months in. And then they lose that puppy look, but they're still t tearing up your shoes and peeing all over your carpet and tearing your house to shreds, right? I see the people with dogs like, yeah. That's your dog, dude. The roommates are like, yeah, your dog's done that in our house. Get them out, right? So this is the reality. Like the gospel, guys, is way more offensive than anything we're gonna read this morning, right? But here's the beautiful thing, right? In light of that, right, the hope of God in Christ is far greater than any offense that the, the word of God might give us. And that anything we see this morning or anywhere else in the totality of scripture, right, can have the claws attached to it that there is hope because Jesus really did come. Jesus really did die on our behalf. And Jesus really did rise again and offer us new life so we can figure these things out together and seek to honor, worship, and make much of the name of Jesus together. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's, let's dive in. I'm already off track which what could go wrong? So we're gonna be peppered with a couple of controversial questions this morning. If you wanna write these down, here's kind of what my goal is in answering these questions this morning that the text kind of raises. Um, how do we address in the church and specifically maybe how Paul encourages Timothy to address these things? How do we address anger and hypocrisy in the lives of men, especially those involved in the life of the church? He's going to address that issue. Um, he is going to address what is appropriate dress for women. He's going to address the issue of whether women can teach, lead, and preach inside the corporate wor worship gathering. And then verse 15, my favorite verse in all of scripture, right? Are women really saved through childbirth? Um, pray for your pastor, please. Okay. We're going to answer these questions, um, but here's the bigger overarching question 
thing that I think we see in all of that as we kind of wrestle through all these individual issues when we go through the text this morning. Does God care about how we live our lives? And does God care about how we gather and worship him? And I think we're going to see from the text, the answer is yes. God cares about the way in which we respond to him, the way in which we worship him, the way in which we live our lives, the way that we interact with those around us. And in that, right, he's going to have Paul give some specific instructions to Timothy to correct the bad examples that were going on inside of this church at Ephesus. All right, so let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, he's going to address the men first. And ladies, let me just pause and give you a clause here. You're going to feel like I'm talking to the ladies more this morning, and I am because the text addresses them this morning. Just come back next week. There will be plenty of talking to the men. I promise you the moment we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's all about yelling at the dudes, right, and what they need to have going on. So if you're like, gosh, man, Pastor Kevin was like really, really harsh on the ladies this morning. I'm talking about that stuff. Don't worry. The, the men's time is coming next week. All right, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. All right, so think about what Paul is saying here to Timothy in light of what we've already seen throughout his letter so far. Right? He, he started off in, in chapter one by talking about the importance of doctrine and how that matters and how the church needs to be centered around the gospel that Paul had taught while he was in Ephesus and that what we teach people about God and how to live before him matters deeply to God. But then, right, if you remember back in 1 Timothy chapter one, Paul talks in depth about the importance of doctrine, but he says all of that in light of verse five. And I wanna read that to you because I think it's super important in understanding how to approach this text this morning. He says in verse five, the aim of our charge, right, of being a gospel-centered church, right, to be a church that loves Jesus and makes much of him, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the goal of the church, right? That we would love and honor Jesus with a clear conscience and a good heart. Pastor Daniel talked a little bit about that uh, two weeks ago, but this idea of being in step with God's word and in being in step with God's word, being able to worship him and honor him and display the glory of Jesus Christ to the world around us in a way that's like, Hey, I'm not perfect, but I am trying to the best of my God-given ability through the power of the Holy Spirit as he regenerates and sanctifies me to make much of King Jesus. And I am locked arms with my brothers and sisters inside of my church to do that together. That is the goal and the mission of the church. And then he goes on to give Timothy a number of different things to do, right? He says, remove false teachers, focus on the gospel and its power to save. And I love how he does that because he shares his own testimony because it would be really, really easy for Timothy to just walked in and kicked all those false teachers out. And Paul's like, look, that's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm telling you to preach the gospel to them and teach them sound doctrine because if anybody can, can be saved the way that I was from false teaching and a misunderstanding of the scripture, then anybody can. And you need to go in there and do the hard work of developing a relationship with these men and these women and teach them the beauty of what Christ has done. Then he goes on to say, don't shipwreck your faith and, and lead others to the faith in that, 
right? And then lastly, as we saw last week, that the church needs to be known as a praying people. That if our aim and our charge is to, is to love God well and worship him together, that the church should be known as people who pray for one another, pray for our leaders, and pray for the world around us. He's like, Timothy, if you're doing these things, this is gonna naturally attract people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? If the church is doing these things well, it's going to be attractive to the world around us. Let your testimony be consistent with what you say you believe to be true about God. Don't be pulled away by bad examples. And then he moves on to verse eight. And the issue that he's addressing here inside the church at Ephesus was this, right? He calls the, the men in the church to pray the same way that he had in those first seven verses. But he says, he says something really interesting, right? Look at what he says. He says, pray, but he says, pray with holy hands, right? Lifting them without anger or quarreling. Now, if you don't understand how to kind of approach scripture sometimes, you miss a lot of what's going on in that verse, right? Typically when we're studying the Bible, it's good to have what's called a good hermeneutic, which means there's like some specific things we should do to better understand what the author is trying to say, right? It's good to understand the historical context that the, the author is writing in. It's good to understand the actual context of the church at Ephesus and things that are being said to them. It's good to understand the grammar and know the grammar of the original language, which would be Greek in the New Testament, and process through those things so we understand what Paul is saying. And so let me give you a little bit of that right now. When Paul says that the men are supposed to lift up holy hands, here's a couple of things that I know immediately when Paul says that. He's talking about the corporate worship gathering of the church. And here's how I know. Contextually and historically, inside Jewish synagogues, this was something that men and women would do in prayer and worship to God. Every Saturday, right, Jews would gather together in the synagogue or Friday night at sundown. They would gather to worship God together and recognize the Sabbath. And one of the things that they would do is in times of prayer and song and worship is they would lift their hands together, right, in, in prayer and repentance towards God. And it, lifting their hands signified a number of different things. It signified the fact that they recognized that they were below God, that they needed God, that they were honoring God, and that they were of a clear conscience before him because they were repentant of any sin that they may have committed during that prior week as they were approaching the throne of God. And basically to throw your hands up was to surrender to him. And so in the context of the corporate worship gathering, right, they're throwing their hands up, right, gazing upon Jesus and worshiping him. I take this away to say, it's okay to be a little charismatic sometimes. Right? Some of you guys that grew up Pentecostal are like, amen. For those of you guys that grew up, you know, Catholic or without a church background or Presbyterian, you're like, whoa, my hands only go this high. And if I'm a guy, they only go up to here, right? It's okay, right? It's okay to lift your hands in the air sometimes, right? That, that this is actually something that's in the, the cultural heritage of God's people, Right, that we would lift our hands as an act right, to almost visually display the surrender before God and a love for him as we approach him. But notice what he's saying. He's like, it's not enough 
that I tell you in these first seven verses to be a praying people, and it's not enough that I tell you to continue to do that throughout the service and be a praying people inside the corporate worship gathering. Right? But he says to do so without anger or quarreling. And so here's what's going on inside the church at Ephesus. They are praying. They are showing up to their weekly worship gathering, praying, exalting the name of Jesus, lifting up God's name, right? Praying to him, maybe even doing what Paul asked to do in those first seven verses. But throughout the week, the men are having issues amongst one another. They're arguing and quarreling and fighting with one another. And then they show up to service and act as if nothing is wrong. They're hypocrites. They are not loving one another, not being gracious towards one another, not caring for one another, which is the whole thing that Paul lets Timothy know should be driving the church in the first place back in verse five of 1 Timothy chapter one. But they're putting on a facade. They're acting, right? They're acting like they deeply love Jesus and wanna be changed by his grace and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet they aren't allowing that work to take place in their lives. And so they come and they lift their hands, but it's all just for show. And here's the problem with that, right? Some of you are like, what's the big deal? I mean, at least they're coming to worship and they're doing what Paul's asking. But here's the issue, right? First of all, remember, the church at this time was not very big. So everyone knew one another. And here's what I know about anger issues. They're really hard to hide. Right? And so, like when, when you are angry with somebody, you either display that outwardly where you are belligerent towards them in some way, shape, or form, or you're inwardly discontent towards them, which then inevitably will lead to some sort of outward expression. I know that over the years. And, and, and here's the deal. Anger, anger is really, really hard to hide. And I know some of the guys here are like, well, you know, I, I tend to be pretty unemotional and, and I, I don't get angry, Kevin. I don't. Right? I'm, I'm just really loving and forgiving towards people. I'm, and this is what I, I've never, I don't yell at people. I'm not wrathful. It's not visible. And I'm like, yes and amen. Do you hold grudges? Do you break fellowship? Do you gossip? Because guys, that's another form of anger. It's just one that we find to be more culturally acceptable. See, this is the thing that we tend to do when we are self-righteous. We pick the parts or the, 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 the typical external sins that we don't like and we blot them out, but we don't kill the actual sin itself. And so so when, when scripture tells us to put anger to death, it's like, well, I didn't yell at my kids. I was just cold and distant from them because they annoyed me. I mean, okay, still anger just manifested itself in a different way. And God God is abundantly clear here that if these men continue to quarrel and argue and have anger and resentment towards one another inside the church, it doesn't matter if they show up at church and worship God together with their hands lifted in praise, that God is not going to honor what is going on there. Because God cares more about the relational reconciliation that would need to take place and a a gratitude of heart 
and a love towards one another that he cares about whether your hands are lifted in prayer or not. Whether you're following the rules to a T and praying for kings and rulers. And Paul's point to Timothy is that if we're not honest with ourselves about anger, deal with it, confess, repent, and reconcile, it's ultimately going to damage the testimony of the church. Guys, when I think about growing up in the, in the valley, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, fairly rural, right? And, it, you know, being in Virginia, we were always confused on whether we were Southerners or Northerners, and so we kind of did both things. And so we kind of had like our good, like, you know, proud heritage where we were proud Southerners, but we also did like the angry, cynical Northeastern thing. Northeasterners here know what I'm talking about. And what, what was really interesting is, is one of the things, right, that was culturally acceptable where I grew up is that you went to church. Just everybody went to church. It's what you're supposed to do, right? It's coming less and less the case, although for most of us, at least when you're in the South now, that still kind of tends to be a thing, but definitely was when I was a kid. And one of the things that made the gospel of Jesus Christ so offensive to me and so hard to believe as a child and a teenager was the hypocrisy of men in the church. Men that treated my dad like scum at, the, at his workplace throughout the week and then acted like there was full fellowship and love for Jesus on Sunday morning. Guys, people see this stuff. And a lot of those men and women inside that church, I don't know whether they really love the Lord or not, but I know that they were hypocrites. And for me, as a young man watching that, it caused me for a season to want to reject everything that Scripture had to say. Not because of anything Scripture said, but because of their testimony. And this is why God cares about this stuff. He says, look... Sometimes, long before someone will ever open up a Bible, they're going to look at you as a professing follower of Jesus and look at your life. And here's the thing. I didn't need those men to be perfect. They just need to be honest. If they treated my dad bad or they treated me terribly, own up to it. Right? Reconcile. Right? And that's exactly what Paul is asking the men of the church at Ephesus to do here. And in my 15 years now as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'll just say this. If there tends to be a struggle I see for men inside the context of the church, men tend to argue and quarrel more than women do. They do. Ladies, I'm not saying that y'all don't quarrel and argue. I've been yelled at by some ladies over the years. But men tend to struggle with this more than women do, especially in the context of what we see here, right? They're arguing over theology and, theology and doctrine. I think I can think of one time in the last 15 years that I've ever seen two ladies engage in a heated debate and discussion over theology. I see men do it all the time, right? Over little nuances of theology and just want to argue and bicker and get angry about it. And it leads to anger and quarrels that can damage our witness. And men, hear this. Here, here's Paul's charge to Timothy and to us this morning. Teach one another, lead one another, and allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform you 
And if you are in a quarrel or in a disagreement with somebody, openly reconcile and if need be, repent and then lift up your holy hands in prayer and worship. That God cares more about our relational harmony with one another than how we're displaying our acts of worship and service to him. And that will allow us to worship and worship with a clear conscience the way he talks about in verse five of chapter one. So men, right, examine, examine yourself, right? As we're hearing this this morning, examine yourself. Hey, am I known amongst those around me for the joy and love that I bring into the relationship or, is I, or am I known as quarrelsome and wrathsome at times? Right, I'll be honest with you. I love to argue. It's one of my spiritual gifts. I love it. I will sometimes even debate with people and take a side that I don't even believe in because I enjoy debating it. By the way, some of you, I can, I'm learning a lot about personality types. Some of you guys are like, ooh, right? Because the idea of any relational disharmony just like makes your, this hair on the back of your neck stand up. And then all the Enneagram mates are like, yes, Kevin, let's debate right now, right? Even I, as I stand before God's word and I hear this, right? need to allow God's word to examine me, point out that sinful behavior, openly repent of it and reconcile when necessary. Because the testimony and witness of the church is at stake. And we must take it seriously. And so men, in the context of worshiping on Sunday morning, gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? God is saying to us, care more about the person than you care about the doctrine. He's not saying don't care about the doctrine. But in caring about it, love one another and be unified. All right, so he, he, he says this to the men in verse eight, and then he's gonna move on to the ladies starting in verse nine. Ladies, you ready to go? Okay, one, one woo, a bunch of... All right, here we go, starting in verse nine. So Paul addresses the issue with the men, right, with their anger and their hypocrisy, and then he's gonna move on to the ladies. And, and, and what he shares here is very anti-2020, very anti-Western American culture. Full disclosure, right? So never let it be said that Pastor Kevin tried to hide when the difficult text came up. I would not preach this if I did not have to. So there's these issues with the men who are quarreling and fighting inside the church. There's false teachers that are amongst them. We learned that from chapter one. Some of them are men, some of them are women leading people astray inside of the church. And this is Paul's response to that. Men, cut the arguing and the quarreling out. And then he steps back and says, all right, ladies, your turn, right? Modesty and your role in the church, especially in the context of the corporate worship gathering matters to God. And we need to get it right. All right, so he starts in verse nine by saying this, the wind, even the wind is trying to prevent me from having to deal with this text this morning. Verse nine, likewise, also, 
that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So if the men inside of this particular church were struggling with uh, containing their emotions and loving one another well and arguing to grab attention and asserting dominance through quarrelsome activity and arguing, the women inside this church were struggling with even some of the same things, trying to grab attention, trying to grab authority, trying to grab people as disciples and followers, but they were doing it in a different way. Instead of doing it through arguing and quarreling and debating, they were doing it with their dress. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not right. Now, let me just say this. Let me start with this. I am a man. Not only that, you can tell by the way I dress, I tend not to struggle with modesty. Like, and, and being vain in the way that I dress. The, the elders of this church, and I'm, I'm not making this, this up, once literally passed a literal rule for this church that the preacher had to wear closed-toed shoes and could not wear cargo shorts because of how poorly I dress. So this is not, when I read this, I'm like, yeah. And some, some people have been here long enough, they're like, hey, I remember those days in the Hippodrome where Kevin would walk up barefooted. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. The elders of the church literally passed a motion inside of an elders meeting to tell me, you are no longer allowed to dress like that. My wife, by the way, informed me last night that cargo shorts are back in. So, Caitlin, let your husband know. <laughs> Comeback time. Sorry. So as I read this text, though, and I see Paul talking to the ladies here, I'm like me personally, I just check out. <laughs> well, it's not my struggle, right? T-shirt and shorts. Let's go, right? And yet here, here is what I'll say. I've noticed a theme over the course of my life. And anytime you speak in generalizations, you can get yourself in trouble. But I've noticed a theme in my life over time. That ladies, you can tend to value outward appearance at a detriment to your witness far more regularly than men tend to. And again, I know I'm speaking in generalizations here, but that is a consistent theme I've seen in my 34 years of life. And here's here's what what I'll say, especially from, from, from my time when I was in college and high school. Immodest dress from women was almost always engineered for two reasons. Either to socially impress others and gain their approval or sexually seduce men. Almost always. And here here is the issue with that, right? Inside the Ephesian church with the women in that church who loved God and had been been gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. These women were then dressing with their full array of jewelry and whatever else it is, not because they felt like God was calling them to do that, but because they thought that that would allow them to grab people's attention and give them some sort of authority or leadership over them. 
Maybe even thinking that the way that they might dress might even give them an opportunity to witness to somebody because somebody might respect that. This is why I have such a, an anger and hatred for the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel says, oh, well, look, if, if we just preach that you can name it and claim it and anything you want, God is going to give you and you can have all these things. And then you, you can walk to people and say, well, I have this great car. I have this great house. I have this great life. All because Jesus gave it to me. People want those things and they'll follow Jesus because of that, not because they actually think Jesus will transform your life and that you'll get to follow the creator of the universe. And so if people started following these women, they were following them because they wanted their money and their jewelry and their notoriety, not because Jesus had radically transformed their lives. And Paul is saying to the men of the church at Ephesus and to the women at this church, look, our testimony and our witness matters. Ladies, you need to dress modestly. because it matters to your witness and your ability to explain to people the way in which God has transformed your heart and life. We want to display the beauty and the power of the Holy Spirit and how he transforms us to love God and love others, not in the things that he might give us that are earthly trinkets. And so Paul says, ladies, do not dress to draw attention to yourself, but allow your heart, which has been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ, to be what, what is, shows and impacts others. Let that be your testimony, not what you're wearing. Guys, a, a prime example of this is when, when I first was a new believer in college. Right, somewhere between my sophomore and junior year of, of college, the Lord just got a hold of my heart, radically transformed my life. And about three or four months in, right, the campus ministry that I was a part of would actually leave Virginia and come down to the Panhandle to go to Panama City Beach for like a, a week of outreach on the beach with spring breakers. Anybody from the Panhandle here this morning? Yeah, wild place. Right. And so we would, go to the, we would go to the panhandle and we would spend a week there. And, and, and this was the first time in my life, I would say, as a, as a young believer and follower of Jesus, that something really grieved me that week while we were there. And it wasn't the, the rampant alcohol abuse that was going on on the beach uh, or the way that people talked to us as we tried to engage them. As a matter of fact, we got into some really, really awesome conversations with people that week about Jesus and what was going on. But the thing that really broke my heart that week was the way that a lot of those college women dressed and acted that week. Because it wasn't just that they were dressed immodestly, but the way that they carried themselves had so little regard for even their own value that it broke my heart. And the men that they were trying to impress around them, let me just be honest, they were not worthy of those, those women's attention. They just weren't. And it broke my heart to see it. And yet with me was a group of hundreds of women who loved the Lord. And dozens 
of college beach going women gave their lives to Christ that week because some woman who was dressed modestly and gave up their week to go up to drunk beach goers to tell them about Jesus radically transformed their eternity. And it was during that week that I saw, man, like these ladies that I am on this trip with, like they're the type of women I wanna be around. They're the type of women I wanna hear from. The type of women that get it because they've been so transformed by the love of Christ that there is a confidence in them that cannot be shaken by the world. And it was beautiful for me to see. And so Paul is saying then this morning, right, as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, men, be known for your self-control and disagreements and arguments, even over difficult theological issues, so that your testimony is not put in danger. Ladies, be known for your self-control and, and, your, and your dress so that you might be known for your love of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. Then he moves on to say this, right in the sec- and, and starting in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. All right, so here we go. Even more fun, right? So remember our context of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the corporate worship gathering of the church. Right? This is not a blanket statement talking about all times at all places. Right? He's talking about the corporate worship gathering of the church. And what he's saying here is men are called to be the teachers and step up in the leadership of the church. Now, I do not have time to go into complementarianism, authoritarianism, and egalitarianism and what those different uh, biblical positions mean and where we stand. So here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you more homework. You ready? On May 24th, I preached on this. And if you were online, you've already heard it. But on May 24th, I preached on this. It is on YouTube. You can go back and listen to it. I spent an entire 40 plus minutes talking about the role of women inside the church and what complementarianism is and what it's not. Most of the time when you say complementarianism, people think authoritarianism, right? Men just are in charge of everything and ladies be quiet and go to the back of the room. That is not complementarianism. It's not. If you've been involved in a church that says we hold to a complementary view of the roles of men and women inside the church and home, and then they tell you that women are supposed to talk and never have a voice, that is not complementarianism. And I go into extreme depth on that in that sermon and would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But let me just say this, right? What Paul is saying here to Timothy, and remember, he's talking to Timothy as a leader who's supposed to be fixing the structure and the issues going on inside of this church, that in matters of teaching and church leadership, especially in the corporate gathering of the church for worship, men are called to lead and teach in that gathering. And women are not called to have authority there. And this was apparently an issue going on inside of that church. 
This means that what Paul is saying, and he's going to go into more depth in this once you get into chapter three, that God has designed the role of pastor or elder for men. Now, however, there are many places throughout scripture where women are esteemed and encouraged to teach, lead, and have authority. Okay, so because one of the things that frequently happens, right, is when you start talking about this text and you say, well, the, the role of preaching and teaching and leading at the corporate gathering is reserved for men inside the church, right? You'll get, you'll get people saying, well, what about women who have the gift of teaching? Do women not have that gift? And I say, absolutely not, right? There's a lady by the name of Jenny Reed who lives in Harrisonburg, who is one of the best Bible teachers I've ever been around in, in my life. Right? And inside of the, the tribe that we're a part of in Acts 29 is a global uh, family of churches that plant churches. Right? Her high priestess, Jen Wilkin, right, is one of the best Bible teachers right, I've ever seen or heard. Both of those women, though, have a deep amount of respect for the, for the, for the complementary position as taught in Scripture and reserve then the right of pastors to lead the way that God asks and calls them to on Sunday mornings inside the corporate worship gathering. This doesn't mean they don't have a ministry. This doesn't mean that they don't teach. This doesn't mean that they don't even have any authority. It's inside that particular context of what Paul is talking about here to Timothy. Let me give you some examples, right? Places where, where women are not only... Um, esteemed and encouraged, but actually called to lead and teach and celebrated for it, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, right, this is Paul writing a second letter to Timothy. And look at what he says to Timothy here. Starting in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in who? Your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well, right? So here, here's what Paul is saying. Bro, you got your, your grandma and your mom to thank for everything you know about Jesus. Thank grandma and mom, right? They, they are the reason you love the Lord, right? Many of you are here this morning and you love Jesus because you had a grandmother who wouldn't stop praying for you, right? I mean, my grandmother stormed the gates of hell praying for me constantly. Like she faithfully, faithfully prayed for me. And I'll never forget my mom praying for me as well, right? After, like I called my mom and I, I came to faith sometime in like 2005 or 2006. So some of you guys like were like still in diapers when that was going on. But just so you know, there wasn't this thing called Amazon then. And I lived a couple hours from my mom. I was like, hey mom, I think like, I think I'm gonna follow Jesus. I need a Bible. That Bible was on my doorstep the next day. I have no idea how she ordered it. I have no idea how she got there that quickly, right? Like she was Bezos before Bezos was Bezos, right? Because my mom loved Jesus and had instilled in me, right? This sincere love for him, right? That when I was a new believer, she was the first person I called. I was like, mom, like, yeah, Love Jesus. I, I think I need a Bible. No idea how I got there so fast. She probably paid like $90 in shipping to overnight that from Barnes and Noble or whatever it was. Right? Paul is saying to Timothy here, hey, your mom and your grandmother taught you, raised you, had authority over you, right? And showed you the beauty of who your God is and who Jesus Christ is. Celebrate that. 
And not only that, Paul goes on in his letter to Titus to say this. Starting in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, similar to what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, right? Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So see what he's saying here? They are to what? Teach what is good, right? So if you've ever been a part of a church, that's like, ladies, just be quiet and never talk. That's not what Timothy is saying. I mean, what Paul is saying as a whole Right? He's saying in the context of the church at Ephesus and inside the corporate worship gathering, there shouldn't be fighting and quarreling over who's preaching. And then he goes on to say this. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Right? Meaning this all matters because our testimony towards the word of God is at stake in all of this. But he's celebrating the role that women have, especially in teaching other women truths about God and who Jesus Christ is. And this may seem obvious, right? But men in the room, and we're not in a room, so men outside, Women tend to know how to talk to other women better than we do. That's typically the case. There have been times where I've like walked into a room of women and I've said something and they all looked at me like I was crazy and I walked out and my wife will come up and be like, yeah, you need to go fix that. Everything you just said makes no sense whatsoever. And if, and if you want proof of this, my pastor had a theory on this. Watch a new mother, right? And, and, and a new father with their child interact with their baby. Right? Babies, they make noises, right? Like, ba, 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 da, da. The dad will always revert to his barbaric instincts and say exactly what the child is saying. The mother, ba, ba, ball, ba, ba, boy. You know, teach them how to communicate. Because, dudes, most of the time, women are just better communicators than us, they just are. Right? And so Paul's point in all of this right, is that we need women who have the gift of teaching and leadership so that they can speak to other women and teach them. Right, Guys, I was so worried about how this was going to land this morning. I literally sat down with my wife last night for an hour last night. I was like, you need to tell me exactly what to say in these spots. Because I wanted specifically you ladies to understand what God's word is saying without Kevin getting in the way. And I, so I would say what I would say to her and she'd be like, eh, no, that's not gonna work. Like, well, how can I say it? I don't know, but not the way you said it there. Because that's not good. I'm like, well, what about this word? Mm -mm. No, that communicates something that you're not trying to say. And this is the beauty about my wife knowing me. Right? She knows what I'm trying to say already, but I don't often say it. And people joke all the time, Kevin uses 10 words, we could use two. And so my wife, right, understood this, understands this. Right, and here's, here's what I want us to see. Ladies, I want you to understand how much you are valued and loved by God. And that what Paul is saying here is not to shut you up, 
and put you in the back and in the corner and to have no role in the church. It's so that you can flourish inside of the way God has designed his church to operate. And so that our testimony to the grace of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives will be magnified. Now, this is the last thing I'll say about these verses. This is God's design for the church and specifically inside the context of the corporate worship setting, at least in the context of these verses. This does not mean then that Paul is saying women cannot lead in business. Women cannot lead in government or other organizations. If someone tells you that and then quotes 1 Timothy chapter 2, give them my number and I would love to tell them all the reasons why they are wrong in their interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Women can and do lead well in business. Women can and do lead well in public speaking and education. Women can and do lead in all sorts of areas including the church, just not in this specific context that Paul is talking about here. And so we seek to honor right, what God's design is for the structure of the church in the corporate worship setting while still esteeming men and women to do what God has called them to do. And whether we like it or not, God has specifically called men to the role of teaching and preaching in corporate church gatherings. And let me just say this, it ain't all men. There are plenty of men who do not meet that qualification or calling as well. And I think one of the biggest dangers I've seen over the years is churches allowing men who do not fit that qualification, fulfill that role, and ladies, I'm just as angry as you are when that happens. Because that is just as much a violation of what God's word says as allowing women to function in this role when they're not called to. God has called men specifically to the role of teaching and preaching in corporate worship gatherings. He calls some men specifically to the role of elder and pastor as we'll see in chapter three. And the church should unify together under God's commands. Let me just say this. I had a lot of questions about this early on as a, as a follower of Jesus on whether this was really what God's word said, whether this was really what was taught, whether it was right, what, what we should do. 15 years in, guys, I'm not, I'm not guessing anymore. I'm just not. And, and, here, and here's what I'll say. I'm not guessing what God's word says, and I'm also not guessing at the practicality and the wisdom in it and the way that it works itself out. It goes better when we follow God's design, not our own. Every time. Without fail. Every time. My wife puts it this way. I've heard her say this to women on more than one occasion when this topic comes up in scripture. My wife grew up in a home with, um, uh, without a dad in the home most of the time and a very, very strong mother who I love dearly. I love Jackie's mom dearly. Right? But she would probably even label and identify herself as a feminist, right? Just so you know a little bit about where she's coming from, right? And so when my wife was, right, then presented with what scripture says about the role of women inside the church, it was really hard for her. 
was really, really difficult for her to stomach that, especially all that her mother had kind of instilled on her, being a strong woman who was independent and could do anything that she set her mind to, which by the way, my wife can. She's awesome. And so can my mother-in-law. But this is what my wife says. Once I realized that I was better off functioning inside of God's design, it actually has freed me up to enjoy and love others in that God-given role more freely because now I know the work I do fully honors the Lord and I'm not guessing any further. My wife will actually tell you, right, that she feels more free inside of living the way that God asks her to than fighting and pushing back on what Paul says here. And that in that role, she functions amazingly well. And she is a gift to me to my family and to this church, the way so many other women in this church are. And so Paul says, look, men, quit the quarreling, quit the fighting, love one another and pray and worship me. And he says to the ladies, ladies, the way you dress and carry yourself matters. Self-control and modesty matter to your witness and you are called to follow God's design and leadership. And then he drops verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Anybody have a robust understanding of this passage? Want to come up and talk about it? Okay, no hands. So let me just say this, okay? Again, first, first and foremost, context matters of what we're talking about here in, in these passages and what's going on here, right? And so remember, right, that, that Paul is presenting all of these various things that are going on. And let me just say, remember that Timothy is in Ephesus. So the issues going on are issues at the church at Ephesus. And yet... Right, one of the most famous passages on all of scripture and how someone is saved comes from Paul's letter to who? The church at Ephesus, right? Let me read Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine for you, right? This is exactly what Paul says. For by grace, you have been saved through, not childbirth, faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay, so wait a minute. Paul says we're all saved by grace through faith and that women are saved through childbirth. What the heck is going on here? Okay, so first and foremost, let me talk about that word saved. That word that Paul uses there is not the word that he uses any other time in connection with actual salvation before the Lord, right? He uses a different terminology there, right? And the terminology he's using with that word saved has more to go like... The word is correct, but, but the idea amongst the Greeks would have been different than being actually saved from like a burning building. It would have been more of like, hey, function in this role and, and live life to the fullest, at the fullest inside of this role would have been the way to present that word. And so what Paul, what Paul is saying here is not that God saves women once they can have kids, 
No, what he's saying is this, that in light of verses 10 through 14, the issues going on inside the church at Ephesus, women trying to wrestle leadership and create arguments and dressing immodestly and the men quarreling and causing their own fights and their own disunity and their own division, that God encourages women to persevere inside their God-given calling the same way he encourages men to persevere inside their God-given calling. And that this unique calling we see here at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which calls men to the office of pastor or elder and women not to exercise in that role is a unique calling for men only and that men are supposed to persevere in that. And yet, this doesn't mean that men get all the glory and women don't get anything, that women have the unique position both biologically and physically to carry children and raise them that men can not function in, right? The argument here would have been like, well, how come men get to do something for the glory of God and women don't get to do anything? And Paul's like, "Uh uh-uh. No, actually, like women and men can argue over whether women could preach or lead and teach in the corporate worship gathering, but there is not a man yet that has actually physically given birth to a baby. And I know some of you guys are like, Kevin, I read CNN. I'm not going to get into that argument. But the biology doesn't lie. That women, you have a unique calling that the men inside of the church are physically incapable of fulfilling. We cannot do it. As an aside, probably if we could, would not do as good of a job. He's saying to the ladies, right? Women, this is a unique calling God has given you that you will have a relationship if you are a mother to that child that no one else will have. Not, not to bring up anything that's going to cause a stir, right? But I'll think about back to that George Floyd video a couple months ago, right? When he was being murdered, who was he crying out for? Was he crying out for dad? He's crying out for mom, right? There is something biologically beautiful in God's design for this. That women, you have a unique role that men cannot fulfill. And let let me just hear this, right? This does not mean, ladies, that you have to have kids to operate in God's design. You don't. Some of you may not be called to have kids. Some of you may wrestle with infertility one day, and we'll walk through that with you if that ends up being something that you have to walk through. But But what Paul is saying here is one of the unique roles that only women get to fulfill in honoring the Lord is in childbirth. Celebrate that and enjoy it. Some of you guys are like, I hate Kevin so much right now. So how do we take all of that, right, and distill it down and say, well, what does this mean for us? what What is God asking of us as his church, as his people? couple things. I want to leave 
these with you. One, God cares about how we live. God cares about the way we structure how we worship. And he cares about it enough to put very specific instructions inside of his word and then preserve it for thousands of years so that we would listen to it. Right? These were not the only things that Paul ever wrote, and yet they have remained because God has ordained it so. Meaning that God cares about this. Meaning that God, men, God cares about the way we relate with one another. And he doesn't want quarrelsome men then coming in, walking in, being hypocrites on a Sunday morning. He wants honesty, transparency, and reconciliation to occur. Ladies, it means for you that God wants you to operate inside of the callings that he has given you and the places that he's called it, and that he wants you to be modest and self-controlled. As we look at this right, it should cause us to seek to study the text for ourselves more in depth and then live accordingly to God's word and his design. And let me just tell you something, guys. If we live like this, men, if we live like this, ladies, if we live like this, we will be different than the world around us. And it will give you an opportunity to talk about Jesus. I have never once gotten the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody because I held the door open for them. I have for my take on sexuality and the way I treat people and extending forgiveness to people because those are radical things that God asks us to do in scripture that are not things our culture does well. And people will ask questions and you will then be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within you that rests solely in your savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake, is our testimony before others. And lastly, I would just say this, instead of focusing on what we can or cannot do, let's focus on what God calls us to. Let's focus on doing that well so that we might glorify him, honor him in our unique callings as men and women together in unity, living transformed lives and pointing people to Jesus. That is the impact the church is called to make on the world around us, seeking the glory of Jesus together, the honor of Jesus together, the praise of Jesus together, our Savior and our King who is worthy.